welcome to the Classically Practical Podcast, a place where we try to explore the tremendous practical relevance for our own times of thoughts and ideas that were articulated in a, dare I say, superior manner thousands of years ago in books that we tend to call the classical books, uh, chiefly by the ancient Greek and Roman authors, but also extending somewhat into the Middle Ages. A lot of times these books are thought of as just sources of antiquarian interests, things you would go read and study if you were in college and you were trying to get a degree, but for, for ordinary people who are just pursuing their lives, ah, you know, who, who really cares what the Greeks and the Romans said? It's just not really relevant to daily life. Well, on the contrary, a great many things found in these books are incredibly relevant. And so I want to start this podcast off, this very first episode, by engaging with an issue that really is quite relevant in our own times, and that's the issue of the difference between animals and human beings. You really don't have to look far in our culture to see that animals are enormously highly valued, in in some respects even above human beings. I'll never forget being in a seventh grade classroom one time in which I was teaching Latin, and we were reading a Latin story in which a boy who had climbed a tree, very normal thing for a boy to do, even in ancient times, he had climbed a tree and, and to, to get a bird's nest that he saw, and well, he's just a, a little bit of a fat kid, and the, the branch broke, and he fell out of the tree and fell on top of the bird nest and killed the baby birds. Well, okay, that's sad. Anybody that likes animals is going to go, oh, the baby birds died. But I had this entire class of young people, granted they were only 12, 13 years old and not adults, but this entire class called the boy a murderer and demanded that he should have been the one that died instead of the precious baby birds. Okay, those are those are kids, as I said, but it doesn't take a long uh, or a hard bit of looking to find adults who think that way about animals, to, to find a, a general tendency in our culture that values animals above human beings. And so that's what I want to engage with here, because they were aware of this in the ancient world. Um, they had their own equivalents of that. And when they started to think about, really think about human beings and animals, they found a bunch of similarities and they also found some crucial differences. And I, and I think this is where the things that they wrote all these thousands of years ago can be of great relevance to our own time. So enough introduction. I want to start this off by reading you a quote from the Roman philosopher Cicero from his book On Duties, book one of the book On Duties. And this is how he starts his discussion. From the beginning, nature has assigned to every type of creature the tendency to preserve itself, its life and body, and to reject anything that seems likely to harm them, seeking and procuring everything necessary for life, such as nourishment, shelter, and so on. Common also to all animals is the impulse to unite for the purpose of procreation, and a certain care for those that are born. The great difference between man and beast, however, is this. 
the beast adapts itself only in responding to the senses, and only to something that is present and at hand, scarcely aware of the past or the future. Man, however, is a sharer in reason. This enables him to perceive consequences, to comprehend the causes of things, their precursors and their antecedents, so to speak, to compare similarities, and to link and combine future with present events, and by seeing with ease the whole course of life, to prepare whatever is necessary for living it. Now that was kind of a lengthy quote, so let me just quickly go back through a couple of the phrases, uh, highlight the things that I think are the most important here. He starts off by saying that all living creatures, humans, animals, all living creatures have been given by nature certain types of tendencies uh, that they share with each other. Um, among these are the tendency to avoid um, things in the world that would harm the body or, or even kill the body. And on the positive flip side, to seek things that will preserve bodily life, such as food and shelter. According to Cicero, and I think we can agree with him here, we humans share with animals these definite tendencies. Um, it's, it's part of a, a common nature that we have with them. He also moves on to say that common also to all animals, and, and here by animals he has also including human beings, is the impulse to unite for the purpose of procreation and a certain care for those that are born. And a great many animals, most animals, have some kind of care for their offspring. I realize there are always exceptions. There are animals that don't care about their offspring, that abandon them as soon as they're born and so forth. And there are always exceptions, right? Just because there's an exception doesn't mean there's not a rule. Another topic for another time, because our time also seems to think that everything's an exception and there are no rules. But anyway, that's, that's a topic for another time. So there are exceptions, but... Most animals, like human beings, care about producing offspring and caring about those offspring. It's, it's something that we share with the animals. But then he gets to what I think is the absolutely crucial difference between humans and animals, and I, I really believe this is something we don't think about. A lot of people in our culture don't really seriously think about this fundamental difference between ourselves and animals. It's, it's not so much that we're not aware of it, I don't think. It's more that we just simply don't give any great thought to this. It may also be that we're distracted by a great predominance of anthropomorphized uh, depictions of animals, chiefly in movies that we watch from the time we're little kids up to, up to, the, up to adulthood and sometimes into adulthood in which animals are given all the developed and sophisticated modes of personality and emotional expression and even rational thinking abilities that we humans have. And it, it's all cute and fun and, and a great deal of, of, well, fun, again, when you're watching a movie, but if you watch enough of that stuff and you, and you, and you really don't think about it, you start looking at your own cat and dog and thinking, they have just as sophisticated a personality as me. Oh, wow. It's amazing how rich my dog's emotional life is, or, or whatever the case may be. I'm not trying to mock that. If you're a super major animal lover, please don't hear me mocking that. I'm saying, this is something I don't think we think of a lot. Uh, really 
take into account this critical distinction between animals and humans. And to go back to Cicero, let me just read again what he said. Man, however, is a sharer in reason. This enables him to perceive consequences, to comprehend the causes of things, their precursors and their antecedents, to compare similarities and to link and combine future with present events. And he's contrasting that deliberately with the animal who simply reacts on the basis of the immediate impressions. Just like animals, we humans have senses and we react to the data that comes to us through our senses. We touch a hot oven, a hot fire, and we jerk our hand back instantly just like an animal would because just like the animal, we have these senses and we respond to it. And over time, if that happened enough to an animal, the animal would start to avoid the hot things. So in a sense, the animal can develop a sort of circuit, if you will, where it recognizes a danger and seeks to avoid that danger in the future. But Cicero's saying there's way more to it with a human being than that. It's not just that we have senses and we react to it. It's that because we're sharers in reason, we actually perceive the causes and the consequences. We can hold together in our mind with a conscious, uninterrupted flow of analytical thought. The beginning event, the consequence that came from it, the things that happened in between, and we can generate these entire great big rational, thoughtful processes about all the things that happen to us. And then we can fold furthermore, we can fold all of that from individual experiences into a much larger, big picture that we would then call what life is about. I'm sorry, animals cannot do that. They can do it in movies, in Disney movies especially, but your dog can't do this like you can do it. Your, your goldfish can't do this like you can do it. There is a fundamental, uncrossable bridge between human beings and animals on this issue of rational contemplation of causes, um, precursors, antecedents, similarities, combinations that generate prudential considerations about what's going to happen in the future, and all of that. And as I'm sitting here saying this, I, I find it all pretty self-evident. And I'd like to just say QED, as they used to say in the old demonstrations, quad erat demonstrandum. I, I've said it, and if you understood what I said, well, it's just self-evident. But I don't think it really is self-evident in our culture because we take speech for granted. We don't really understand what it means that we can not just make sounds. Animals can make sounds. Animals can convey certain wishes with certain sounds that they make, and so can we. But we don't really think about, I don't believe, the fundamental difference between the sounds that we make and the sounds that they make. Our sounds are not just sounds. Our sounds are speech. And that makes all of the difference. Let me read a little bit more from Cicero, and then I'll shift to a Greek thinker before I wind this down. Cicero goes on, The power of nature and reason is not insignificant in this too. 
that this one animal, and there he's referring to human beings by the term animal, this one animal alone perceives what order there is, what seemliness, what limit to words and deeds. No other animal, therefore, perceives the beauty, the loveliness, and the congruence of the parts of the things that sight perceives. Nature and reason transfer this by analogy from the eyes to the mind, thinking that beauty, constancy, and order should be preserved, and much more so in one's decisions and in one's deeds. They are careful also to do nothing in an unseemly or effeminate way, they meaning the human animal, because of the ability to perceive the consequences, the antecedents, the future conditions, all of that. They are careful also to do nothing in an unseemly or effeminate way, and in all their opinions and actions, thinking and doing nothing licentiously. So again, this is, this is the absolutely crucial difference between human beings and animals that I, I think we just really, as a, as a culture today, we, we don't really get this, whatever the reasons for that are. We don't get it. We don't think about it. We don't draw it out to its natural conclusions. And so we really miss, as a whole culture I'm talking about, not individual ones among us, but as a whole culture, we really miss the unique specialness of humankind. We, we've lost it because we so over-magnified animals and so, so anthropomorphized them. That's fancy Greek words meaning human form. We've made them so human-formed in so many ways that we just don't often perceive the critical differences between us and them. Well, okay, assuming you've come along with me this far, you might be saying, all right, I, I can see that, that that's the case with animals and man, that, that speech is different. Well, so what? So what? Let me shift now to a Greek thinker then. That was a Roman thinker, Cicero. So here's something from the... Uh, or, uh, orator, the, the speaker Isocrates, who lived eh, about 440-something years before Jesus, and he's talking about speech in particular in this connection. So here's what Isocrates said. For in the other powers which we possess, we are in no respect superior to other living creatures. Nay, we are inferior to many in swiftness and in strength and in other resources. I'm going to stop there for a second. That, that's something I think we should have no trouble agreeing with. If we compare ourselves, contrast ourselves with other animals, if you will, in this broad sense we're talking about, we humans are classifiable as animals in, in, a, in an analogous way to the dog and the cat and the lion and all of that. Analogously, we are all animals in that sense. And I think if we look at it that way, we can clearly see that human beings are inferior to other creatures in certain ways. For instance, our, our instincts in some respects are not quite as fine-tuned and honed as certain other creatures. We don't carry around with us claws to defend ourselves. Um, we don't have wonderfully developed fur systems and, 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 and the associated internal heat regulation to where we could live outside all the time, almost no matter the weather, and we would be fine. Um, our vision is not as acute as certain other animals, hearing, smell, all of that. I think this is all pretty self-evident. We are, in some respects, inferior to other animals. 
But let's get back to the crucial distinction. And let me pick up by Socrates again. He says, But because there has been implanted in us the power to persuade each other and to make clear to each other whatever we desire, not only have we escaped the life of wild beasts, but we have come together and founded cities and made laws and invented arts. And generally speaking, there is no institution devised by man which the power of speech has not helped us to establish. Full stop. Let's look at that for a second. Again, we anthropomorphize animals to an unbelievable degree in our culture. Unbelievable sometimes how human form we make animals in our thoughts. But I'm going to ask you, when's the last time a group of dogs got together and deliberated about a future consequence that they were looking at was probably going to happen, maybe it'll happen, not sure if it's going to happen. We better make a plan to take into account what's going to happen if event X comes about. And as we're thinking about this, we're going to go back, we're going to hold that in our mind, okay, not getting rid of that, we're going to hold the future thought in our mind. And we're going to cast our mind back at exactly the same time as we're holding on to the future thought. We're going to cast our mind back and think about stuff that happened before that was maybe similar, maybe a little bit different. Can we draw any lessons from that? What happened in issues A, B, and C that were kind of sort of similar? What were the precursors? What were the, the consequences? Can we take any lessons from that and apply it right now to this thought about the future that we're holding in our head? All of this holding together in our minds at the same Oh, and each of us is doing that individually, but we're in a group all doing it together, and we're emitting these sounds from our mouths that convey information to the other people. They're not just sounds. The sounds coming out are rationally ordered and they're conveying actual information from our minds to someone else's mind and we're kicking all of this around. We're deliberating. We're thinking, philosophizing, if you will. Philosophy is not just for people who go to college, everybody. It's not just something you study in college. It's something you do all the time. Anytime you ask, why did something happen? You're being a philosopher. What if something happens? You're being a philosopher. Whether you have any kind of degrees in the subject or not is irrelevant. It's what the mind, the human mind does. When's the last time you saw a group of dogs doing this? When's the last time you saw your kitties doing this? Sorry, it doesn't happen. This is something only human beings do. And notice that what Isocrates is talking about here is politics. Oh, there are a lot of things that can be said about politics using ancient texts and drawing out practical implications for them for our own time. Oh, just so many. I'll have to do more episodes to bring out some of those. But here I'm just talking about the difference between animals and human beings. And here you see a couple of uh, ancient people, a, a Greek, Isocrates, and a Roman, Cicero, saying there's a critical difference between animals and humans, and it has to do fundamentally and profoundly with the fact that the sounds we emit from our mouths are speech. 
and they can be used in ways that no animal sound can be used ever that we've ever observed. If this kind of thing is going on among animals, we never see it. And so I guess if you want to say, well, you know, when we go to sleep, the animals are doing all this stuff. And as soon as we wake up, they stop and they act like dumb brutes. Well, I guess you could say that, but that's just complete ridiculous speculation. Nothing we've ever observed about animals ever says they do this kind of stuff. Animals do not engage in politics because the sounds they make are not speech. And the things that they do in responding to sensory impulses are not rational consideration. I'm going to repeat one more time this thing that Isocrates said and then I'm going to wind this down because there's just so much to say it's going to have to be said later. I'm going to come back to this. Because there has been implanted in us the power to persuade each other and make clear to each other whatever we desire, not only have we escaped the life of wild beasts, but we have come together and founded cities and made laws and invented arts. And generally speaking, there is no institution devised by man which the power of speech has not helped us to establish. So that, my friends, I submit to you is the absolutely crucial difference between animals and human beings. It's one I do not think we take very seriously in our world. We, we don't, because we just generally don't think about words. All of us, every, every one of us, tend to be just incredibly sloppy with our speech. This, this thing that the ancients knew fundamentally separated us from every other kind of creature except, of course, the gods in their context. The gods were above us, but this thing that fundamentally separated us from every other kind of creature. We in the modern world, oh, we're so smart with all our technology. Look at all this stuff we do. Yeah, but we're unbelievably sloppy with language. We just sling words around like there's no tomorrow, like they're just a dime a dozen. And we, we really do not think about speech, what it means, how we should use it, how we shouldn't use it. What does it mean that we open our mouth and make noises and create laws and cities and invent arts? No animal does that. No animal ever has done that. And I venture to say no animal ever will be able to do that. And that's the fundamental difference. And that, I think, is where these ancient things written thousands of years ago in different cultures, in different languages that have had to be translated so that we can even read them in our own language. When's the last time an animal translated something from another language? But anyway, all of this stuff has extremely practical um, applications for our own day and time. And that's that's what I hope that I have conveyed to you today in this inaugural episode of Classically Practical. I hope you'll join me next time uh, for another attempt to look at these old books and see what they might have to teach us today.